Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Robert Buckingham, and um, I'd like to welcome you to M Pavilion this evening on this beautiful night. Um, we would like to acknowledge the Boonarong, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, and pay our respects to the land, their ancestors, their elders, past, present, and to the future. As most of you know, the M Pavilion is an initiative of the Naomi Milgram Foundation, um, and the free program of events is made possible uh, through the support of the Victorian Government, through Creative Victoria and the City of Melbourne, plus many, many other partners. Um, tonight is our next M Talk um, on the fascinating story of the American architects who made Australia their base and home for 20 years, Walter Burley Griffin and Marion Marnie Griffin, and their part in the history of Australian architecture. Um, in 1914, the Griffins arrived in Australia. As most of us know, they, of course, won the competition to design Canberra. Less known is that, of course, they spent 20 years in Australia, uh, working in both Melbourne and Sydney, um, and produced something like 270 uh, projects. Also, even less known, is that the Griffins worked in India. And because this M Pavilion um, is designed by an Indian architect, we felt that was an, an interesting, a very relevant connection. Um, they worked for two years, I think, in India, and uh, Walter actually died there in 1937. So tonight we wanted to explore this history, especially because of that Indian connection, but also because we have two very uh, eminent experts with us tonight, Sir Jonathan Mills and Professor Philip Goad. Sir Jonathan Mills is uh, a famed composer and festival director. He has directed numerous international festivals, including Melbourne Festival and most recently the Edinburgh Festival. He is currently visiting professor at the University of Melbourne where he has curated and devised Cultural Collisions, which is on at the University of Melbourne until the, this weekend. So please go and see it. The Cultural Collisions is actually inspired by the Griffins and also the composer, the Australian composer, Percy Granger, and presented in association with the 2016 Melbourne Festival, as is M Pavilion. Um, as he will explain, uh, the Griffins have been an area of his research and musical composition. Professor Philip Goad is an authority on modern Australian architecture and also, for the also involved in cultural collisions. He has curated a research project um, and exhibition on the Griffins and the unique and their unique knitlock construction system. So we're delighted to have Jonathan and Philip with us this evening. So thank you. And this is a conversation. <laughs> we hope so. Yes. <laughs> A ukulele and a guitar is what we need, or possibly a sitar, um, or a pair of sitars and a tabla or something <laughs> like that. That's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Griffins have a very special connection with India, and it's a, it's, this is a great place to actually start a conversation about their connections. And while... Uh, Robert mentioned that Walter Burley Griffin died in India. The connection begins a great deal earlier. In fact, it begins in many respects as a comparison to their involvement in Australia. When Walter Burley Griffin and Marion Marnie Griffin won the competition for Canberra uh, in 1911-12, there was another capital city design getting underway and that was in New Delhi in India. And so there's been great comparisons between the capital city design by Sir Edwin Lutyens and the new capital city for Australia. One was, if you like, the last, last gasp of the empire in India and the centre of that, that fabulous plan for New Delhi was a viceroy's house. The, na the national capital plan by the Griffins was completely different. It wasn't necessarily about empire at all, but it was about an, their vision of a new democratic nation. And I think when the Griffins, but particularly Walter when he visited New Delhi, I think he would have been greatly heartened by the efforts that he'd made, he and Marion had made, to really experiment with something uh, unusual and very different and in many respects uh, that was the sort of beginning if you like of this connection and comparison that can be made with the Griffins and, and India. And 
If I might just add to that, um, what is a composer and a festival director doing sitting next to uh, an architect and an architectural historian thinking about and talking about Walter Burley Griffin and Marion Mahoney? Well, I would like to suggest that um, the context in which the Griffins arrive in Australia is a context beyond that of the immediate concerns of architecture. Of course, they win the competition to design and build Canberra. They envision it as a great um, bush city, uh, an inland city of a very particular kind. And not having been here, the proposals that they make that you can see um, in the Australian archives are truly remarkable. Um, because there was no Skype, there was no um, internet, there was no way of them connecting very directly with the cinema cinematic nature of that land. And yet, they were really quite prescient about th that landscape and, that arc and, and, and the way of situating and locating a city and its axes in that landscape. But I'm interested as a composer, not just in the Griffins as architects, but the Griffins as agents of social change. The Griffins as people who wished to ask us questions about the nature of the way we wanted to live, the relevance of society to a new nation and that relationship, and because of their spiritual beliefs, which of course drew them to India, um, absolutely without question but they were they were very prominent members of the theosophical society um, and the anthroposophical movement in Australia and lest that seem very fringe like don't forget that there were very many prominent people in Australian politics at that time such as Alfred Deacon, such as C.W. Bean, um, uh, the historian, um, King O'Malley, um, many, many people who were toying with this idea of a spiritual alternative to the constraints of Orthodox, Christian or other religions and thought that an independent Australia needed to be interdependent and influenced by many other ideas, spiritual, political, social and otherwise. And that's where I got to start to think about, well, what is the deep relationship that one could express through music um, on behalf of the Griffins that would lead to some kind of um, evocation of what they might have meant had they actually got to build Canberra. And so as part of the collaboration that Philip and I have been undertaking at the University of Melbourne, he has built, and he'll talk about it in a moment, um, a one-to-one -one replica of a house that the Griffins built for themselves at Eaglemont. And what's wonderful about it is that, the, that his students have looked at it, they've analysed it, they've made the bricks and they've actually assembled this building themselves. Not at a 1 to 25, 1 to 50, 1 to 10 model, not at something that is purely theoretical, but at a 1 to 1 scale that you could, adding a roof like this, in fact inhabit. You'd have to add a bit of plumbing, you'd have to um, add a bit of furniture, but you could actually live in the foliota um, that is in the Dulux Gallery at Melbourne School of Design. And we encourage you, if not to go and live in it, at least to go and pass an hour in it um, on the weekend, because you can do so. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, I was interested in Marion's idea of how we see and what we look for in the built environment. Not just the radical dimensions of this, the social engineering part, but the ephemeral notion that um, there is such a thing as an ethereal eye. There are things that manifest themselves if you know what to look for, but you have to be attuned quite literally tuned in 
to see such things. Now, Marion was no doubt a, a person of some eccentricity, um, and and yet she was an absolutely brilliant designer, yes. an absolutely brilliant draftsperson. She she had chops, as we would say in the music industry. Yes, no, Ma- Marion. Uh was a few years older than Walter, not by many. Uh, She was a star graduate of MIT in Boston, and she was, I think, uh, one of the most brilliant renderers of her time. She was the person that drew for Frank Lloyd Wright many of his spectacular drawings that were then republished in the Vasmuth portfolio in 1910 and which essentially made Frank Lloyd Wright an international name. But it was Marion's drawings uh, in the Vasmuth portfolio that, that achieved this. She, uh, like Walter, was interested in theosophy. Uh, st- the um, uh, society in the United States where they first gained their interest uh, had deep connections to India Uh, and uh, figures like Madame Blavatsky and others. Uh, But she was an extraordinary person uh, and her drawing skills, her architectural skills, she was trained in the Beaux-Arts tradition, were, if you like, a perfect complement to Walter's training. His training was as an architect but also as a landscape architect. He was trained at the University of Chicago, Illinois, Urbana-Champaign and he was trained in tectonics, we would call them today, uh, trained in uh, Rettenbacher's theories, which was looking at the fundamental nature of form. So fundamental geometries, fundamental geometries that might come from natural forms, from rocks, from crystals, uh, from leaf patterns and the like. So Walter's interest is uh, in, if you like, deep form, fundamental form. And Marin and Walter shared a great interest in landscape. Both of them were totally enamoured with their, their uh, uh, if you like, ignorance and then complete knowledge of Australian flora. When they came, they took camping trips, canoeing trips uh, to understand and Marion's drawings in particular really captured the magic of the Australian landscape. So if instead of coming to Foliota, or if as well as coming to Foliota um, at the university and seeing this remarkable knitlock construction that Philip and his students have actually made... And I will talk about it. Yes. Um... <laughs> On Saturday, if you were choosing to do more than just that, you could come to the dining hall at Newman College, Um, arguably the most important public statement that still exists in this city, Mm. uh, other than the Capitol Theatre that no one realises is a public statement and is not as as available um, that that Walter that is the residue of their of their many many projects in this city, um, many of them um, were residential projects, others were what were called cleansing incinerators, the the most up to date um, form of environmental protection for their period, mm. which of course were hopeless um, by today's standards, but were very important and understood as being important um, at the time. The most disastrous destruction of these of one of these um, of, of these incinerators was was without doubt the incinerator at Piermont. Yes, in Sydney. Yes, in Sydney to make way for um, those um, buildings of dubious merit um, on in Darling Harbour. Certainly not as important as the Griffins buildings. Mm. And there is a passage in Marion's book, The Magic of America, um, where she describes. Um, a correspondence that she'd had with Lisa Meitner, um, the um, the German physicist, years before the atom was actually discovered or smashed, Marion had thought about this idea of atomic power and the kind of combustion, and had suggested to Walter that the the brickwork designs on the out 
outskirts of the outer perimeter of the sea, of the chimney stack in in Piemont um, would actually be a pictorial representation of what the smashing of the atom might have been like. Exactly. So they were absolutely in tune to the most up-to-date um, intellectual, phys- um, scientific, artistic, um, environmental conversations of their day. But if you were to come on Saturday evening to um, the dining hall at, at, at um, Newman College, you wouldn't see students building something as practical or as, or as useful as foliota and playing with the materials of architecture. What instead you would hear um, and see in that dome is a remarkable um, installation by the the Melbourne-based projection artist Ian de Grucci, who's literally kind of created an eye through which you look into that dome. And a piece of music that I wrote for Barry Kosky for his 1996 Adelaide Festival that takes the or, or proposes the relationship, a subliminal relationship between um, music and architecture to pick up on what Philip was saying, this idea of form or essential form. Now, any building, this one, any building you like, is um, a set of proportions, a set of geometric relationships, and those relationships can be defined as a set of simple numbers. Um, the repeating pattern of this facade could be, what is it, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, let's say. You could say that there are seven intervals there and that this interval was one over seven, that was two over seven, this is five over seven. Well, actually, if you take a piece of string or a piece of tube, any resonating um, object, you can do the same with music. You can actually turn the simple numbers of a proportion that can express an architecture into the simple numbers that can express the pictures, the the sounds of a scale. And in doing this, in thinking about this relationship between the sound of, of a space and the physical attributes, the geometrical attributes of a space, I think there's something deeply Indian about this way of thinking. That's right. Intrinsic. Yeah, and look, if you if you have the very good fortune to go and hear Jonathan's piece of music combined with Ian de Grucci's, uh, if you like, visual scape, mm. it's quite an extraordinary experience. It's almost like a reverie on the Griffin's uh, uh, work because projected above you, you have almost a life's work of architecture made into this kaleidoscopic eye and then the ambience of the music that accompanies it means that you're transported, if you like, into some other transcendental world, which is in what is in many respects the Griffin's thought lay at the heart of, uh, of architecture. Just getting back to, to Foliota, the, the Griffins came to Melbourne because Melbourne was the capital of Australia as Canberra was being developed. So Melbourne is the capital from 1901 to 1927 when that little parliament house, the white one that we all know, uh, actually was opened. So the Griffins came to Melbourne to work with the Commonwealth Office and they had to live somewhere. At first they had bought a block of land in Turak, a wonderful block of land overlooking the Yarra and just above the railway line at the end of Kuyong Road. They tried to get a permit for their house and didn't really succeed, uh, partly because the construction that they wanted to use was this system called Knitlock, which Griffin had patented in 1917. A brilliant invention that was about tectonics, about uh, 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 two wall surfaces locking together to form what we call a tesseral, uh, uh, if you like, pattern. So it was like a sort of basket weaving in concrete. And they were vertebral elements. 
And so the whole thing together, the structural skeleton of the vertebral, vertebral elements and the testal nature of these wall elements, it was like a sort of concrete basket or even the, the, the uh, qualities of a, of a concrete tent. And the Griffins uh, experimented with this system. It was almost like a sort of, how could you architecturalize the perfection of nature? So they would have looked at a structure like this and tried to actually take apart the fundamental elements of bamboo and explore it for its structural uh, strength and its aesthetic capacity at the same time. They couldn't get a permit in Kuyong, uh, so they uh, decided to build on a block of land which they owned out at Eaglemont, next door to Walter's sister, Genevieve, and her husband, the architect Roy Lippincott, who worked with the Griffins. And out at Eaglemont, on the subdivision which Griffin had laid out in 1916, which in itself is fascinating, the Glenard Estate, it's an ideal garden suburb, a special form of garden suburb, one where most of the blocks of 120 blocks of land backed onto communal public reserves. It was just above the floodplain of the Yarra and the Griffins designed pathways so that you could go from Lower Heidelberg Road through the estate, not coming upon cars, but go on little walkways through the communal reserves and then down to the river. And the interesting aspect of the subdivision is that the roads were uh, uh, curving, almost serpentine, following the contours, and it was an ideal, uh, uh, if you like, vision for house and landscape being joined together. They got a permit for their house, which they called Foliota. Uh, they got a permit for it as a doll's house, almost as if it was a giant cubby house for the Lippincott house and that's how they were able to get a permit. It was tiny. So this, if you imagine, is a square plan where we are. The plan of Foliota is 6.4 metres by 6.4 metres, 21 foot square. It's absolutely minute. But in that tiny little house, it was a cruciform in, in uh, the open plan inside, was a cruciform. It had everything. They even had two double beds, one in each alcove, they had a, a piano, uh, a beautiful fireplace. It was as if this was a, a microcosm of an ideal uh, world. And in some respects, a private echo of their axial plan for Canberra. And at the centre of this living room space was a ziggurat, uh, almost uh, uh, pyramid-like uh, volume. Uh, it was an extraordinary idea, uh, and it was one which they hoped might be a key to thinking about workers' housing at a democratic level, at thinking about a pro as, a, as a prototype for future housing. And that lay behind their ideas for Nitlock. The key aspect to Nitlock was that you could make the blocks on site. It was almost a do-it-yourself strategy. And then you could actually build the house yourself. So you could actually make these 14 different types of block and then aren't using anyone's labour, your own. It didn't require skilled labour, didn't require bedding either. You could actually lay the blocks and gradually build the house almost as if it was uh, Lego. Uh, the other aspect... And we've seen that because the students did precisely that. That's right. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing about seeing both Foliota and experiencing ethereal eye, one is ethereal and ephemeral and ultimately experiential. The other is completely tactile. You can actually, in one of the installations, pick up the, uh, the knitlock blocks and slide them back and forth and actually touch them. It's very tactile. And I think they're a great pair in terms of experiencing the Griffin's, uh, uh, if you like, ideals. And so just to continue with this idea of that relationship between architecture and music, uh, in, and I'm allowed to get technical for a moment, yes, I are. won't get too technical, <laughs> I hope. Um, Indian music, in almost every... Um, practice, and there are so many classical traditions in India, the one thing that is common to each of those practices is a drone. The, the note that you hear that just continues on. 
a fundamental note. And the idea of the music is that every note that you hear that isn't that note is a rising and a falling out of it. It's, it comes from that place. The idea that it's the tension between that fundamental and any other note that you introduce is in a sense the building block, the lifeblood of that music. In our own music, we have... So it's, it's all about melody and rhythm. It's not about what we would call harmony, lots of notes together. Western European music um, functions at a completely different level. It is about chords of many notes, some of them clashing, some of them consonant, all heard together. And so in Indian music, the idea of propulsion is all about the minutest shift between a pitch, a different note. And in an Indian scale, depending on where you are and depending on the time of day, quite literally a morning raga is different to an evening raga, um, you can have up to 31 notes in an octave. The one thing that is common to all musics of all cultures is the unison, the note being the same, bam, bam, or the octave, bam, bam. Every other note in every other musical tradition is up for grabs. And in Indian music, whereas in Western music we have 12 notes, the seven white notes and the five black notes on a piano, just to put it simply, um, we have 12 notes. Indian music has up to 31 notes. But potentially, because of the proportions of numbers, there's any infinite number of notes you could find. The only, the only challenge is the ability of the ear to perceive a difference. So, pure intervals to our ear sound out of tune. But our intervals, our equal-tempered intervals, sound to an Indian classical musician wildly out of tune. And there are many reasons that I won't go into tonight because they are too technical. But what I would say is that what I tried to do in the ethereal eye in acknowledging this world of Indian music, in acknowledging very much our own musical practice in Western Europe up until about the fifth, end of the 15th century, was to experiment with new tuning systems of musical instruments. I was very lucky that at the time I was doing this um, under the influence and the encouragement of Peter King at RMIT and um, subsequently with Barry Kosky at the Adelaide Festival, there happened to be in Australia two remarkable instrument designers. One who now has a, uh, an internationally um, significant career called Wayne Stewart, who's made the Stewart and Son piano. At the time he was working at Preston TAFE and he was teaching the piano technology course there. He and I wandered down a road, found a, a, a wreck of an old upright. He said, I'll take the metal um, frame out of that. Uh, my students can experiment with it. He made a new wooden frame and he made a microtonal uh, piano for me, one that actually has 25 notes to its octave. A, 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 a piano that plays exactly like a piano but sounds completely different. In Adelaide, one of the great marimba keyboard percussion tuned keyboard percussion instruments is to be found in the Adelaide Hills a man called Jim Bailey he rose to the challenge of making me a pair of microtonal marimbas and so the basis of this ensemble is slightly differently tuned con uh, seemingly conventional instruments 
along with a few exotic things that we don't have the possibility of presenting in Newman College because of heritage and preservation constraints, such as a series of giant monochords. The resonating box of these monochords would be about the same size as the square in the middle of this pavilion, about 500 metres above um, the ground with a dowel that runs another two and a half metres above that and the string lengths of these would be uh, were 21, 27 and 33 metres long. They'd work beautifully here Naomi um, but they can't actually be attached anywhere. I mean really I didn't want to be responsible for demolishing that that great edifice um, and the dining hall at, um, at Newman College. But again, what I was trying to do with these instruments is symbolically search for things that were beyond our own immediate cultural tradition in music, using the materials and the, uh, the forms and the functions, as, as Philip has said, and Yes, this is very ethereal, but it's actually very rooted in very practical ideas of how you make different sounds on different instruments and that they work in different acoustical circumstances. So at one level, there's something very um, ethereal and ephemeral about this. At another level, it's actually very practical as well. I won't go on about the... Um, the um, the acoustic properties of our tuning systems because that would probably be just a step too far technically sure. but sufficient suffice it to say that um, two over one is an octave three over two is a fifth bomb bomb not quite it's that's a that's our fifth not an indian fifth um three four over three nine over eight very simple numbers whereas the the, the scale the tuning in our particular um scale in western music the white notes and the black notes is a proportion or a, a function of a complex number which is the nth root of x the twelfth root of two 12 subdivisions of, of, of a repeating number, which is 2, which is a number very much more complicated than 3 over 2 or 9 over 8. It's 1.059643 to those few decimal points. Just to give you a sense that what we've done in the West is make an amazingly elaborate compromise and what I believe the Griffins were searching for and what they were arguing for at the deepest level is to reacquaint ourselves with first principles and origins of how we wanted to express form because of the way in which we choose to live. And the Griffins also to, uh, were very interested in geometry as a fundamental idea. So Jonathan's discussion of the differences between Eastern and Western uh, music is quite apposite because the Griffins were... The, the inspiration from their work geometrically was the example set by the Chicago architect Louis Sullivan, who they often quoted in their writing. And Sullivan is the originator of the oft quoted and perhaps badly quoted uh, saying form follows function but what he was really interested in was form as a generating idea and for uh, Sullivan a Chicago architect trying to invent something new for the future he not only looked, thought about function but about ornament and that the two might be combined and the inspiration for Sullivan and for the Griffins was a range of many things, but one particular thing which interested Sullivan was the architecture of Islamic cultures. And particularly, uh, Griffin would describe it, oh, Sullivan was interested in Saracen architecture. Now, the architecture of uh, Islamic cultures revolves a lot about the scalability of geometry and the non-representational aspects of geometry. And so the Griffins were interested 
very much in the idea of the square and the power of the square to be scaled up, scaled down, to be divided, uh, to be repeated, to be subdivided. Rotated. Uh, all, yep, exactly. Uh, and in their architecture, that was a preoccupation before they came to Australia, but it increased uh, uh, here in Australia. In particular, it was a distinguishing element between their architecture and that of their former employer, Frank Lloyd Wright. Both Griffin and Marnie had worked for, for Wright. When Griffin uh, had the opportunity to travel to India in 1935, it was a great opportunity. He didn't leave Australia because there was a lack of work. Uh, they'd been in Australia for more than 15 years after uh, Griffin's position as Federal Capital Director of Works had been terminated. But one of the attractive aspects of Griffin going to India was that his friends Ulla Maddox and Ronald, Ronald Craig friends from Castle Crag, had made connections with people in Lucknow. And Lucknow is the centre of northern Islamic culture in India, and it's also the headquarters of the Theosophical Society. So at this stage, Griffin and Marin um, uh, and Walter were, had progressed from theosophy to also anthroposophy. So when Griffin went to India, he was reading the works of Rudolf Steiner and uh, anthroposophy is sort of the next step, the, a more sophisticated version of theosophy. And these ideas, his architectural ideas of geometry and mathematics and connections with nature, because Sullivan had always uh, um, argued that there was a possibility of a new ornamental system coming from nature. This was a perfect opportunity for the Griffins to expand their repertoire and build in a place where the idea of the universal in uh, thinking and the universal in form making might be appreciated and respected. And so Griffin went to India uh, at the invitation of a contractor who had managed uh, to get a commission for Griffin, and this was the University of Lucknow uh, Library. And it was a great opportunity. Uh, Marion stayed for a, a short while in, back in uh, Sydney at Castle Crag, and Griffin went to, to India. And he was uh, extraordinarily gratified. Uh, he travelled via Colombo, New Delhi. He made great criticism of Lutyens's capital city plan, his, if, if you like, his rival capital. Uh, and he was critical of the sort of Ro what he described as the Roman style of the buildings in New Delhi. What was interesting is that when he travelled to India, he travelled via uh, Ceylon, Sri Lanka as we know it today. And a very perceptive person Griffin was, he said, goodness, all of these houses that I saw in Melbourne and even uh, MacArthur's house uh, out at Parramatta, they've all been derived from Indian colonial prototypes. And uh, he said all of those great Victorian houses which I saw in Melbourne, actually it's all been done before but in India. Uh, so he was, if you like, very interested in form and origins and then in his own compositions about repeating forms in much the same way that Jonathan was talking about repeating geometries in music. These are repeating geometries in architecture. So he did some ex extraordinary buildings. Um, Marion soon joined him in uh, uh, 1936 and one of the marvellous commissions they got in Lucknow was the All India Exposition where Marion and Walter designed about 60 buildings on a huge site. It was like an, a world expo, but in, in India. And uh, uh, the drawings that still survive by Marion are some of the most ex exquisite uh, drawings of the early, early 20th century architecture. The drawings also show you, like Eastern musical scales, this fascination with scale and repeating geometries and particularly the square. So in many respects, they're the next step beyond the grand interior of the Capitol Cinema here in Melbourne into giant-scaled public buildings. With time, though, Griffin 
got rather disappointed with the bureaucracy of the local Indians in Lucknow in much the same way that uh, he was frustrated with the bureaucrats here in Melbourne and particularly in Canberra. Uh, when Griffin fell ill, he had a gallbladder operation in uh, 1937 and after the uh, operation he developed peritonitis and died in India in 1937, uh, only aged 60. It was an extraordinary, I think, uh, tragedy because the Indian chapter, if you like, in the Griffin's career pro had so much promise, as had their uh, 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 decades here in Australia. I can't help thinking, Philip, as you were speaking, of the comments that um, have been made um, many decades later um, from Paul Keating um, to contemporary leaders of Australia about the importance of Australia in... There we go. <laughs> That's us, Jonathan. <laughs> Are you the one with the purple plume? <laughs> Very nice. Right. Um, I can't. I can't help thinking about the importance. Yes, you quite. Is this? Do you think they're being a bit territorial? Yeah. Or are we? Yeah. Yes, beautiful plumage there. Um, no, the. I can't help thinking that that so much of what the Griffins um, proposed for Australia was just simply ahead of its time. That in the immediate aftermath of a at least controversial um, settlement where Western Australia didn't uh, initially um, want to join the Federation, the Commonwealth, and all of the discussions that had gone on between these former colonies, the dominance, even in its death um, uh, throes of the British Empire, the influence of the Foreign Office and the common and the and the, the and the Commonwealth Office as it became, um, it was almost that that everything was stacked against them. But think about what they were saying. Think about the relationships that they were proposing. Think about the places that they were fascinated by. And think about Paul Keating's establishment of APEC. Think about the enormous in, um, emphasis that Australian governments are placing these days on our relationships within this neighbourhood, within this very broader neighbourhood of Asia and Southeast Asia particularly, but from India to China and so forth. Think about subsequent generations of Australian artists particularly, whether an Ian Fairweather or a Peter Sculthorpe, um, whether a Robin Boyd or um, whoever you would like to think about, a, a Maria Gazard, about the fascination that um, that all of those artists have shown to this broader neighbourhood. And then think back to what the Griffins had proposed initially, both for Canberra and for Lucknow. And I think the broader message and the deeper tragedy for all of us is that, uh, that we didn't have the capacity to allow um, this remarkable duo to explore to the fullest extent that they should have, not to the complete extent that they may have wanted to, mm. but to a far greater level than they than we ever did. There is hardly a Griffin building in Canberra left. Mm. That's right. I, I think the, the circumstances uh, were against them. In, in yeah. some respects, they had won this competition 1911-12. As you said, very, very eloquently, it was when there were a group of people, if you like, in power, uh, who were prepared to chance their arm on the Griffins, to chance their arm on Australia presenting a new form of democracy, visually, formally and aesthetically. And then 1914, World War I, and 
the Griffins are designing their capital. By 1918, uh, the empire has returned, if you like, in terms of fear uh, in Australian culture and a, a nascent conservatism rises again. So by 1920, just when they've finished or in the midst of building Foliota, uh, Griffin is thwarted by bureaucrats in Canberra and to their credit they have faith in the place here uh, they stay for another well Griffin does for another 15 years and in many respects uh, their um, hope for Castle Crag is realised and I think with time, they were hoping that Australia might recognise what they'd what they'd offered. I think today, when we look at the Capitol Cinema, we see an extraordinary world-class building. I mean, the fact that we were a long way away, it has the same quality of uh, Hans Poltzig's Schauspielhaus um, in Berlin. You know, it, it was a major monument for its time, utterly current, as was Nitlock, utterly current in terms of its... Uh, sophistication in terms of reinforced concrete construction and in terms of their planning of Castle Crag and the Glenard Estate, utterly current. Um, their vision of, of, of what progress might mean was uh, really inspirational. And so um, I think in concluding, initiatives like this pavilion, um, beautiful, resonant, reflective, um, at one level a folly, but at another level an absolutely essential contribution to a discussion about the things that really do matter and the things that will enhance the dignity of everyone's lives and a direct challenge to conservative forces that have no broader vision and no bigger or enlargement of the circumstances in which we lead our lives. And so um, both with this pavilion and the many that will follow, um, I hope that we can continue this provocative conversation about the nature of the spaces that we choose to design and inhabit just as they did a um, hundred years ago and that we should be ever vigilant about the fact that however sophisticated Australia may think itself to be today, just think about what Philip just said about elements of conservatism, about elements of doubt, about um, elements of, of ambiguity, about a lack of generosity, and whether it's in the aftermath of the catastrophic effects on Australia, particularly drastic, of the First World War, or um, the elements of more recent policies of exclusion, of, of migration. I think that we need to be constantly vigilant in making the case for architecture, for music, to be intrinsic parts of the way in which we choose to lead our lives. Thank you. I think that's probably yeah. a nice place to conclude. So, um, please... Once again, thank you, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Philip, for a wonderful discussion. Now, I know you both have to go, but perhaps there might be time for one, one or, or two, two questions. questions. I was interested when you talked about the Griffins as agents of change. And, and obviously the fact that they did like 270 projects, they had clients, they had a lot of clients. A lot of clients, And yeah. And particularly in Sydney, Castle Craig, yes. they really developed their, developed a, a whole community there, didn't they? Which, they did. Which had a cultural component, they had a theatre, they had public spaces, they, it was very the much... scenic haven theatre. <laughs> yeah. An amphitheatre in the middle of that. Yeah. But, I, but I think remarkably in Melbourne, they had one of the most conservative clients, the Catholic Church, who bravely commissioned Newman College. 
I mean, that, that I think, is a remarkable uh, leap of faith for a very conservative client to choose the Griffins. And the Griffins wanted Newman College to be in concrete initially, uh, argued against, bad argument, because the stone's given them grief ever since, uh, the college. Uh, but I, I think uh, there were people in Melbourne, as Jonathan said at the very beginning of this evening, there were people around Melbourne and Sydney at that time who were prepared to take a chances and think about change. And the Griffins, uh, I think, rose to that challenge. Uh, we're very lucky, I think, to have Newman College, the Capitol Theatre, and the Glenard Estate uh, and the Mount Eagle Estate and the ones, uh, well, there were several, uh, here in Melbourne. It is remarkable in reading some of the transcripts of the Royal Commission that was established into Canberra all those years after the, the competition. Um, one of the most potent contributors to that discussion was a man called Senator Ray, a senator from Queensland, I believe, who was a... He was either a shearer or a railroad fettler, I can't remember, but he came from a very, very practical background. He was the most... Um, he was a shearer. He, he, <coughs> he was the most remarkable supporter of not just the Griffins, but why we want the very best. And he was being naysayed by people who were ostensibly far more sophisticated than he was, but he actually knew something at a much deeper level. It's a bit like Joe Carl, the railroad fettler, as Premier of New South Wales, who chooses Jorn Utzon to build the Sydney Opera House. And it's only when Davis Hughes comes to power and the Askin government comes to power that that whole scheme comes to grief. This is not a party political message, by the way, because I think both sides of politics have had their moments of deep conservatism. Mm. But it is to say that, that, that there is an element in our society that comes from um, a very generous place that wants the best and is prepared to um, argue for the most unorthodox elements and they often come from places you would least expect. So there's no room for us to be um, uh, too, too, um, too sure of ourselves in, in, in pursuing this debate. But I, think, but I think coming back to your point, Robert, um, I think that it is um, a measure of the tenacity of the Griffins that they absolutely did not give up on Australia and they were very content to find their civic and urban laboratory in places like Eaglemont and Castle Crag and, and were very generous about sharing that. Okay, so if there's no further questions, once again, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Philip. That was thank wonderful. You. Thank you for the opportunity. And congratulations on this wonderful pavilion.